Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen wa salatu wa salam ala ashrafil anbiya'i wal mursaleen wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in Allahumma inna nas'aluka khayr ma fi hadal yawm fathahu wa nurahu wa nasrahu wa barakatahu wa huda wa na'udhu bika min sharri ma fi hadal yawm wa sharri ma ba'da Allah we ask you for the good that is in this day its successes its opportunities its guidance, its blessings, and we seek refuge with you from the evil that is in this day and the evil that comes after it. Alhamdulillah, thank you guys this morning for joining me. Um, we're going to be uh, reading another chapter from uh, the 70 Laws of Virtue. Uh, if you have not purchased this book yet, you can purchase this book. You can go to our website, masjid. Uh, dot com, and you can purchase the book directly from the website, inshallah. So we're going to be reading from law number 22 today. And I think it's just an appropriate, uh, appropriate time to read it. And this law is called, there is no greater trial for men than women. <clears throat> there is no greater trial for men than women. So I'm um, going to give you some, I'm going to read the ayah and then I'm going to give you some context. All right. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and the lady in whose home he lived tried to seduce him. And she locked the doors firmly and said, come to me. All right. <clears throat> you can buy the book from our website, www.rollthemasjid.com. You can buy the book directly from the, the, the website, or you can email me and you can purchase it directly from PayPal, uh, Imam Shadid Muhammad at Gmail. The book is $29.99, all right? Uh, and thank you all. So uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَرَاوَدَتْهُ الَّتِي هُوَ فِي بَيْتِهَا عَن نَفْسِهِ وَغَلَّقَتِ الْأَبْوَاهِ وَقَالَتْ حَيْتَلَكِ and the woman in whose home Yusuf was raised tried to seduce him. And she locked the doors firmly and said, come to me. So let me give you some context. This was after years of Yusuf being raised in the house of the Aziz, the chief financial officer of Egypt, the second most powerful man in Egypt at that time. As he's growing up in the house of the Aziz, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed Yusuf with half of the beauty of the world. Half of the beauty of what you see in the world. When you marvel at mountains, you marvel at waterfalls, you marvel at the beauty of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's creation, half of that beauty was given to Yusuf. All of that beauty was, half of that beauty is contained in one man physical appearance. <laughs> All right. And so growing up in the house of the Aziz, obviously uh, in close quarters with the woman, the wife of the Aziz, he's in the home alone with her a lot. All right. He's in the home alone a lot with her because Aziz is constantly outside of the home. So here again, the beauty of Yusuf 
the wife of the Aziz, as we would later on come to find out that um, uh, uh, her husband was a eunuch. Uh, I was pronouncing that wrong. Someone corrected me. Uh, her husband was castrated. So uh, essentially, Zulekha was a virgin. And the temptation of being in the house alone with, you know, someone who looks like Yusuf, you know, is is almost unavoidable. All right. So you got to think about the type of situation that she's in, the type of situation that Yusuf is in, because Yusuf is the one that is innocent in all of this. He didn't ask for this situation. This is the situation that he was put in. Nonetheless, being in close quarters with a woman for a man you know, is definitely something that could could turn out to be a very dangerous situation. So she tried to seduce Yusuf. He got to a certain point in his age, around 20, 19, 20, some scholars say 20, 21. All right. So he's at the peak of his, you know, his beauty, his a man's beauty begins to peak around 20, 21, 22. And then Sometimes, depending on how they take care of themselves, they may age well, right? They may age well, right? The gray starts to settle in, you know, some of the features start to get more full, you know, and they start to look more mature. But at 20 years old, 21 years old, especially for the physical body, is he's at his peak. He's at his peak. And so she began to desire him. She tried to seduce him. And some of the scholars say there were seven doors in the house. They live in this huge mansion. She went and she locked all of the doors. She went and she locked every single door. And then she prepared herself. SubhanAllah, she prepared herself. So she goes and she does her hair. She puts on perfume, negligee, lingerie, whatever she put on. And then she walks into the room where Yusuf is and she says, hey, Talek, come to me. This is what I've been desiring from you. I mean, think about this whole entire scenario, you know, and for those of us that are men that are listening, we have been in situations that are less, <laughs> that are less tense than this. And we have succumbed, unfortunately. So could you imagine being in a situation like this? What man from amongst us, Jazakallah would have had the personal fortitude to resist a situation like this? We're on page 110. We're reading from one page 110, law number 22. There is no greater trial for men than women. And I want the men, the men that are listening, I want you guys to pay attention to this because we oftentimes overestimate ourselves and we underestimate shaitan. We overestimate ourselves and we underestimate shaitan. We say, no, I, you know, I would never do that. You know, I, I got more self-control than that. And lo and behold, we find ourselves in a situation where we're making toba. You know, we're feeling remorse. We're feeling guilt, you know, in a situation that we could have avoided had we just been honest with ourselves. So she tried to seduce Yusuf. So let's begin reading on page 110. The beauty of Yusuf was endowed with, uh, uh, the beauty that Yusuf was endowed with affected people in many different ways. All right. The beauty of Yusuf, it affected people in many different ways. 
some positive, some negative. <laughs> some positive, some some negative. You know, um, beauty has a way of affecting people like that. Some in a positive way, some in a negative way. Some people appreciate your the you know the the beauty, not just your physical beauty, but the beauty of your character. Some people appreciate that, and some people envy you for it. This is the trial of beauty that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala blesses you with, you know, a certain look in a certain environment at a certain time. And some people appreciate your beauty, and some people try to exploit your beauty, and some people envy you and are jealous of you because of it. It affects people many different ways. It's not something that we have any control over. It's just the trial that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us. So you have to understand that beauty can be a test. And this is something for our young daughters, for our daughters to understand. You know, sometimes we do their hair, we buy them nice clothes, and you have, and you know, we pride ourselves on, you know, you know, building self-esteem within our daughters. But the other side of that is that while we're teaching our daughters to have self-esteem, while we're teaching them you know, to, you know, to, you know, conduct themselves and to care about how they look and to care about their hair and to care about their dress. There's another girl who's looking at your daughter and hates her and is envious of her and is jealous of her because of it. All right. There's a book called Mean Girls, you know, for any moms that are, you know, find that their daughters are struggling with something. And there are a lot of mean girls out there. Why girls are mean to other girls. It, it happens. So in teaching our daughters, you know, to care for themselves and to take pride in the way that they look and the way that they carry themselves, we have to also teach them the, the downside to that and that there are going to be people who are going to try to exploit you because of your beauty. There are people that are going to try to take advantage of you because of how you look. There are people that are going to envy you and hate you because of how you look. The same thing that happened to Yusuf is that she exploited Yusuf. She saw Yusuf's beauty and she decided, I want that for myself. So she concocted this whole entire scheme, locking all of the doors, going and prepare herself and then come to him and says, you know, come to me. Not asking him. Sometimes people don't even ask your permission. They don't even care, you know, about whether or not you want to be a part of this. They have in their mind, you have what I want, and I'm going to go after you. I'm going to seek you. I'm going to exploit you. Meanwhile, they never even gave you an option to, to choose to even be a part of that. And that's just where we are. man. And Muslims, we are not impervious to that either. It happens. So the beauty of Yusuf affected people in many different ways, some positive, some negative. In the case of his father, his stepmother, his aunt, and the Aziz of Egypt, his beauty was endearing and caused them to sympathize with him and to protect him from the perils of his experience. So when we look at all of the people who Yusuf's beauty had a positive effect on, we look at his father, right? His father, you know, obviously 
saw much of himself in his son, Yusuf. So, you know, his beauty was endearing to his father, his stepmother, right? His stepmother, she was, you know, his beauty was endearing to him. Uh, the Aziz who saw Yusuf on the human, you know, selling block, you know, and purchased him. What caught the Aziz's eye was Yusuf's beauty. As he's riding by, he see all of these slaves being sold on the auction block. And his beauty, his eye immediately lands on Yusuf. So his, and he goes and he purchases Yusuf and takes him home and tells his wife to honor him. So these are the people who Yusuf's beauty throughout the story had a positive impact on, right? And then there were those who his beauty had not such a positive impact on, right? In the case of his brothers, they were envious and jealous of him. In the case of the travelers, the caravan that was driving by that looked down into the well and saw this handsome young boy at the bottom of the well, and rather than try to find his parents or try to find out how in the world he ended up in the bottom of a well, they saw him as a commodity. We're going to keep him for ourselves. We can sell him. All right. So the impact of his beauty, as well as the wife of the Aziz, when she saw how beautiful he became, she desired him. So in the case of his brothers, the travelers in the caravan who purchased him, and the wife of the Aziz, the impact of his beauty caused them to overlook his humanness and to exploit his vulnerability. Right? They tried to exploit his vulnerability, right? Similar to the way that people see us, you know, you're, you're a beautiful girl, so a guy is gonna see you and say, I want you for myself. He doesn't see your humanness. He doesn't see you, know, you as an individual. He just sees the outward beauty, the external beauty that makes him desire you for himself. Women do the same thing. You see a brother, you say, oh, he's handsome. I wonder if, uh, you know, are you interested in marriage, brother? Yeah, I'm interested in marriage, but I'm not interested in marriage to you. What makes you think that I am interested in marriage with you? Is that you saw how handsome the brother was and you desire to have that for yourself. You didn't ask him if you wanted to be a participant in that. You just saw what you saw. You didn't see the humanness. You didn't see anything beyond the beauty. All you saw was that's what attracted my attention. You didn't seek to get a deeper understanding of the person and what, what is beyond the beauty, right? We do that often. We don't want to get beyond the beauty. All we saw was what attracted our attention, and that was enough for us. And believe it or not, this is one of the things that makes young girls go in the direction of, you know, either being bisexual or just going completely, you know, lesbian. You ever wondered, I'm talking to the men for a second, you ever wondered why, especially in today's time, some of the, the prettiest girls are gay. Did you ever wonder that? I want you guys to think about that for a second. You ever wonder why some of the prettiest girls are gay? I want you to think about that for a second. And one of the reasons 
as I had a conversation, just me prying into, you know, the why. I just want to know why. And a lot of times what was explained to me by a particular woman, uh, why she decided to go that route. I used to work at a barbershop um, in my earlier years. And uh, I go into this um, deli bodega that's on the corner, right, to get some. And there's two girls in there. One of the girls is very pretty, pretty, pretty girl. These were teenagers. You know, I'm back from Medina. This is when, you know, in North New Jersey, this is when the whole gay thing kind of exploded. It was around, I would say, 2004, 2003, 2004. You know, I'm, I'm completely oblivious, but, you know, I kind of, I'm home for the summer. So I kind of see, you know, girls holding hands and, you know, and these are young girls. And so I go into the store to buy something. I'm waiting in line. There's two girls in front of me. And um, they're holding hands. They look like they can be no more than 16. And so one of the girls leaves out of the store. I guess she goes outside or whatever. And the other girl, she turns to me and she says, you Muslim. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm Muslim. You know, I have on a thobe and everything. And she said, um, yeah, my, my, my dad is Islamic, you know, you know, I guess associated, affiliated with Islam. She said, my dad is Islamic. I said, really? I said, so what about you? And she said, well, you know, not so much. She was like, you know, I believe in God, but, you know, I, I never decided to go that route. I said, what's what's the deal with you and the other girl? Like, what's what's that? I saw you guys holding hands. If you don't mind me asking. She said, well, are you married? I said, yeah, I'm married. I said, um, she said, well, just like you and your wife are married, you know, that's my girlfriend. And I'm like, wow. I said, how old are you? She said, 16. I said, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little puzzled. Like, you got to explain this to me. How does a 16-year-old girl who has probably never been in a relationship with a man before in your life, how do you decide at such a tender age to go that route? And her words to me were, I got tired of everybody only concentrating on how cute I am or how beautiful I am. I'm like, wow. And it took me a while to kind of process what she was saying. And, you know, pretty girl. And I'm thinking about how when we're growing up, the first thing people leave with, oh, she's so cute. Oh, she's so beautiful. Right. And that's all people see. They don't see anything else. They see the hair, the pigtails. They see, you know, if you put emphasis on being light skinned, if you put emphasis on having freckles, if you put emphasis on, you know, hazel eyes and all of these things, these are the standards of beauty in our society, right? And unfortunately for this particular child growing up, that is all, that is the first thing that everybody sees when they see her. That is the first thing that every, nobody sees her on the inside. Nobody sees the person on the inside. Everything is centered on how the, the girl looks physically. And eventually she rebels against that. 
And she goes because boys only want her for her looks, right? Boys only want her for her looks. So she decides to go be with a girl who, you know, of course, women have an, uh, an emotional connection. Women talk to connect emotionally. That's not to say that the girl that is with her hasn't exploited her for her beauty as well, but has made it clear to her that she is definitely concerned with who she is on the inside. There you have it. I mean, I hate to kind of oversimplify it, but in many instances, that's exactly what it is, especially for the younger girls. Obviously, there are other factors. Um, there are other factors as homosexuality and lesbianism and all of those are responses. They are responses. They're not who these people are. They're responses to trauma, right? Any young boy who decides to become gay, any young girl who decides to become bi or to become a lesbian, that is a response to something traumatic that happened in their lives. That's a fact. It's a response. It's not who they are. All right. They don't understand that at, at a young age. They don't understand that. But this is the focus. The focus is always on the physical. So in the case of Zulecha, right? In the case of Zulecha, she found the beauty of Yusuf to be irresistible. He lived with her and her husband for years, and with the passing of time, it seemed that her desire for him continued to grow uncontrollably. Uncontrollably. The Prophet ﷺ warned men about the dangers of being in close proximity to women, knowing how closely our enemy, Shaitan, watches us. Knowing how closely our enemy, Shaitan, watches us. Shaitan sits from a place, Satan sits from a place where he and his followers from the jinn can see us, but we can't see them. So as men are in close proximity with women, they are not aware of the inner workings that Shaitan is working constantly, constantly. You ever worked around a woman? I'm talking to the men right now. You ever worked around a woman or been around a woman upon seeing her, you have absolutely no desire or connection to her. You have no desire or connection to her. But over time, as time continues to, you know, to press on, you eventually start to see the woman in a different light. Maybe she said something to you. Maybe you learned something about her why. Maybe you learned something about her that made you a little bit more sympathetic to her. Maybe she did you a favor. She did something to you. Physically, when you first see her, you have no desire for her. She's not your type, whatever. But just being around her over time and women, the same thing. You ever been around a man? And when you first see him, upon first seeing him, your initial reaction is that, yeah, eh, he's basic. You know, wouldn't be something that I would risk it all for. You understand? But over time, you know, maybe he's nice to you. Maybe he carried something for you. Maybe he did a favor for you. Maybe you found something out about him that made you a little bit more sympathetic to him. 
You know, this is Shaitan piecing the, together the puzzle for you. And then over time, you start to see the person in a different light. He's not that bad. She's not that bad. She's actually cuter than I, I thought I was. You understand? This is Shaitan working on you. You don't realize that. He's working. Because if you go back to when you first saw the person, that was your immediate response. Ah, now nah, I'm good. I would never talk to this person, right? You ever walk into a room, right? I'm, I'm one of those people. I walk into a room, especially if there's women there, I automatically identify who's going to be my problem. I don't know. I think that's a wise thing for men to do, right? If I walk into a room, it could be a conference, a talk. It could be, you know, meeting room, boardroom, whatever. I walk into a room and there are women in the room. I immediately identify the woman that's going to, or the women that's going to be a problem for me, right? I know what my type is. I know what, you know, triggers me in a certain way. And I know when I identify, all right, she's going to be my problem. I have to move myself to another side of the room. I have to position myself to where I don't give her access to me because I already know that she's going to be a problem for me. You, you have to be mindful of who is in the room. You have to know how to read the room. That walking into a room oblivious, oh, nobody in here want me, nobody in here checking me out. You don't have to look like anything. I think, you know, if you've lived long enough, you've seen that. You don't have to look like much. If Shaitan wants to take advantage of you, Shaitan wants to take as many people to hell with him that he possibly can. Shaitan wants to take as many people to hell as he possibly can, right? And it's, sometimes it's not even the look, it's the energy, right? It's a certain energy that certain men and women give off, especially non-Muslims, because they are sometimes not even aware of the energy that they give off. They're not even spiritually inclined. They're not even in tune with the energy that they give off. But you, as a God-conscious person, when you walk into a room filled with strangers, some Muslim, some not Muslim, or some not Muslim at all, it's your duty, your responsibility to guard yourself and protect yourself and to know where your problem areas are gonna come from. What's called calculated risks. You are risking walking, risking your, you know, your integrity, your morals walking into this room but you have to be able to calculate you know, who's in the room and where your problem area is going to come from. If you walk into a room and you're oblivious and you think ain't nobody checking for you, nobody looking for you, nobody, you are sad, you are a sad case. I feel sorry for you. Because you might, because of your obliviousness, you might be welcoming a certain energy that you probably don't even realize you're welcoming. And this is especially true for women because sometimes you guys can be pretty oblivious when you walk into a room as well. You have this thing about yourself where ain't nobody checking for me, nobody looking out for me, you know, I'm basic. I'm, you, play your, you play yourself down. You play yourself down as a woman and you're thinking that ain't nobody checking for you. You're thinking nobody physically in the room has to be checking for you. 
but shaitan is checking for you. Did you ever stop to think about that? Nobody in the room, nobody in the room physically might be checking for you, but that doesn't mean that shaitan is not going to tap somebody on the shoulder and say, there's your target. You understand? That doesn't mean that shaitan is not going to tap one of the jinn from amongst mankind who is sitting in that room, tap him on the shoulder and say, there's your target right there. Go get him. No, maybe nobody is checking for you, but shaitan is always checking for you. And so therefore you have to always be two steps ahead, period. You, you have to be mindful. You have to be mindful. So, and I mean, you guys can continue being oblivious and thinking that I'm, I'm telling you some real stuff here. I'm telling you some real stuff. As a God-conscious person, and there's no human being on the face of the earth that should be more God-conscious than a person who prays five times a day, a person who has a meeting with God five times a day. Muslims pray five times a day. There should be no human being on the face of the earth that is more God conscious than a Muslim. There's nobody that should be, you know, more God conscious. And so therefore, you being God conscious, you have to think. You know, you have to think two steps ahead of everybody else that's in the room. Because I have more to lose than everybody else. When you're on social media, you still have to be aware. When you open up your DM and you see DMs, you have to be aware. You have to be two steps ahead, understanding that you have an eternal enemy that wants to see you burn in the depths of the hellfire. Right along with him. So you you have to be mindful, man. You have to be mind. You don't have the luxury to be oblivious. You don't have the luxury to be oblivious. So in the case of Zulekha, in the case of Zulekha, she found the beauty of Yusuf to be irresistible. He lived with her and her husband for years. And with the passing of time, it seemed that her desire for him continued to grow uncontrollably. The Prophet warned men about the dangers of being in close proximity with a woman, knowing how closely our enemy watches us. Shaitan sits from a place where he and his followers from amongst the devils, from amongst the jinn, can see us, but we can't see them. This dynamic undoubtedly gives him an advantage that should make us extremely vigilant at, at all times, lest we lose sight of his scheming and fall victim, all right, or fall prey. Lest we fall victim, right? You got to be aware of this dynamic because it gives him the advantage. Watch how this chapter opens up. I need you guys to pay close attention. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-A'raf, Surah number 7, Ayah 27, 
indeed him and his soldiers, meaning Shaitan. If I, I don't know what's happening on, on uh, Facebook, if I'm breaking up on Facebook, you guys can go to Instagram. Uh, I don't know, you know, if it's the, um, uh, if it's the Wi-Fi, I don't know what's going on. But uh, if it's breaking up, you guys can go to Instagram, inshallah, I'm streaming it on Instagram live as well. All right. I don't know. It could be my phone dying. I don't know. Um, put some more in here. Dark. Dark. It's too much money. Okay. So, continuing. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِنَّهُ يَرَاكُمْ هُوَ وَقَبِيلُهُ مِنْ حَيْثُ لَتَرَوْنَهُ That shaitan and his party from amongst the jinn, they watch you from a place where they can see you, but you can't see them. That gives him another advantage. Pay attention to the advantages that shaitan has over us. Shaitan is another advantage. There's another advantage that shaitan has. He can watch you from a place where he can see you and you can't see him. Here's another advantage. Shaitan has a way of distorting the physical image of people in an attempt to give him leverage over situations that he couldn't otherwise control. How does shaitan distort images? Pay attention. Shaitan has been given the ability to distort physical images of people in an attempt to give him leverage over situations that he otherwise wouldn't have had leverage over. And now with the creation of you know, this, these cosmetics that are on a whole other level than the cosmetics that my mother and grandmother and you know, my aunts used to use back in the day. In today's time, cosmetics can, cosmetics resemble magic, where a woman can literally look like much of nothing, and then she can put on makeup, eyebrow, eyeliner, whatever, and transform into a completely different person. So Shaitan doesn't actually have to play out, you know, the shift shape, shift shaping, and you know, transforming, distorting images. We, he's given us the tools to do that ourselves in today's time with the makeup, with now fake hair. You got guys now who have a bald spot in the middle, right? And I'm just forewarning you guys that uh, I'm going bald up top, and I don't think that that's going to change. Uh, but I'm totally comfortable wearing a bald head, so. You guys are going to have to get comfortable with that. I'm totally comfortable with a baldy. Uh, I wore a baldy in my teenage years. I wore a bald head, you know, making Umrah multiple times, Hajj. I'm good with a bald head. I'm okay with that. Um, you guys are going to have to be okay with that because once this begins to continue to lighten and there's nothing I can do about that, I'm, I'm going to go completely bald. So it is what it is. I'm just forewarning you guys. Nonetheless, even with men today, they have on, you know, these uh, these wigs. You got men wearing wigs today. You can't just own the fact that, you know, you're going bald. It is what it is. Just shave it off. It is what it is. But now you got guys, you know, go and they get these wigs put on. And then they're shaping up the outlining it to make it look like it's really their hair. This is shape. This is demonic. It's demonic in nature if you think about it. It's demonic. 
It's demonic in nature because it's distorting the image. And this is actually haram in Islam for a person to distort their image to make themselves look like something they are not. And it's in, in our religion, it's haram. In our religion, all of this is haram. Even wearing makeup to the point where you have made yourself up to look like a completely different human being. I mean, you touching up this, you touching up that, you have some blemishes here and there. All right, cool. Not for the purposes of beautification, but for the purposes of, you know, just cosmetic. Okay, cool. Understand that. But the way that, and especially Muslim women, the way that some of the women dress their faces up, you you don't even look like who you really look like. You are you have a completely different image. And this is satanic. I'm just letting you know, I'm just throwing that out there. I'm just throwing that out there. Make America authentic again. I love that. I love it. So let's talk about shaitan for a little bit. Shaitan enhances the beauty of those who already possess it and creates beauty for those who don't naturally have it for his own sinister motives and objectives. You guys understand, right? And then you're using all of these filters and taking pictures of yourself and using filters and you know, what happened to natural beauty? What happened to natural beauty? What happened to women just owning what God gave them and keeping it moving? What happened to women just owning what God gave them and just leaving it at that? You're enhancing your beauty. And this is all from shaitan, I promise you. You guys may not see it like that because you're like, oh, well, he's exaggerating. That's some religious stuff. That's some, you know, uh, over-exaggeration. There's nothing wrong with a little bit of makeup here, but it's not a little bit of makeup. If you're distorting your entire image, it's not a little bit of makeup. It's a lot of makeup. It's magic. It's magic. Because what you are not factoring in is how Shaitan is presenting your image to the public when you come outside. When you look at yourself in the mirror, you're thinking that you just put a little bit of makeup on here and there. But when you come outside, Shaitan takes your image and projects it to the world to look like something else. Listen to what the Prophet ﷺ, listen to this. The Prophet ﷺ, he said, the woman comes in the form of shaitan and leaves in the form of shaitan. The woman, Aqbala, she comes in the image of shaitan and she leaves in the image of shaitan. So if one of you men sees a woman that catches your attention, then let him go home to his wife for because she has what she has. Pay attention to this hadith. This hadith is collected in Sahih Muslim. Pay attention to this hadith. We're going to dissect this. We're going to unpack this hadith for a little bit. Pay attention to this hadith. The Prophet said, that the woman 
approaches in the image of shaitan and she leaves in the image of shaitan so if one of you sees from a woman what arouses his desire then let him go home to his wife because his wife has what the woman that he just saw has let's unpack this real quick imam al-qurtubi explain the meaning of this hadith he said that the woman approaches in the form of shaitan and leaves in the form of shaitan meaning shaitan is able to manipulate what is apparent from her physical body and beauty to sway the natural desire and inclination of man towards immorality which has the potential to be far worse than the fitna of shaitan himself this is why the Prophet said, I have not left a fitna, a trial, a tribulation, a misfortune, a calamity that is more heavy on the shoulders of men than women. A trial that is more perilous for men than women. So let's, let's unpack this a little bit more. So the Prophet ﷺ said that the woman approaches in the image of shaitan and she leaves in the image of shaitan. What does that mean? That means that shaitan has the power to manipulate what people see. A woman sees herself as one way, but shaitan has the power to manipulate that image. So as a woman, you're thinking when you look at yourself in the mirror, you know, I'm fine, I'm good, whatever the case may be, I'm just going to touch up this, touch up that. But what you're not thinking is that when the moment you step out of your door, shaitan has the power to manipulate your image to the rest of the world. So what you see in the mirror is different than what the world sees when they look at you. Whether that is you coming, you approaching, or is that you walking away, you leaving, right? In every movie, in every movie, I don't know if you guys are aware of this. In most movies, movies that have some type of uh, meaning to it or lesson in it, they always say, beware of the woman in the red dress, right? If you remember in the Matrix, right? When um, um, he's talking to um, the young guy, right? Morpheus is talking to the young guy and as he's talking to him trying to explain to him what the matrix is and how people are affected right the woman with the red dress walks up and as she's walking she got his attention and so Neo's looking at the woman he said Neo are you looking at me or are you looking at the woman in the red dress in that very moment got his attention he said now look again and the woman has a gun pointed at his face that's the distraction. Men, you need to understand that. Shaitan uses the imagery of the woman to distract you. A man might be on his grind, and there's nothing that can take a man off of his grind other than a woman that catches his attention. A man could be driving down the street, and look out his window and see a woman, whatever the case may be, walking by a woman, looks like she's looking at him, 
and he almost crashes or he might even turn the car around. He might even double back around the block to take a second look in that moment. Took you right off your grind. You understand? You got. You have to understand the trickery of Shaitan, man. If you don't know your enemy and you don't know yourself, you will succumb in every battle. But if you know yourself and you know your enemy, you need not ask about the result of a hundred battles. You need not ask about the result of a thousand battles. You're good because you know yourself and you know your enemy. But if you don't know yourself and you don't know your enemy, you're going to lose every single time. And there's some men who are just gluttons for pain, gluttons for pain, because you don't take the time out to understand yourself. You don't understand the, the, the world around you and what's happening around you. You just see the physical world around you and you don't see anything deeper than that. And as a Muslim, I'm, I'm just, I just can't understand why as people who pray to God five times a day, why haven't, why hasn't our God consciousness at some point become, you know, the illumination of our path? Why do we keep making the same mistakes over and over and over as it relates to women? Why? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us in the Quran, the Prophet sallallahu has laid it out in his sunnah, the Sahaba radiallahu has demonstrated and while we say these are, you know, these are our forefathers, these is who we, these are the, the men that we follow, the, the men that we emulate, we imitate. God forbid you are a man and you work in a predominantly woman-ran environment. Or vice versa for a woman who works in a predominantly male-dominated environment. You have to know yourself, man. But the woman comes in the form of shaitan and leaves in the form of shaitan. So as the woman is walking towards you, shaitan has already distorted the image. So what she really looks like as she's walking towards you is not what you see. What you see as a man is what shaitan wants you to see. And what shaitan wants you to see is exactly what he has been watching you to find out what you like, what floats your boat, what does it for you. You think Shaitan doesn't know that? You think it's a coincidence that your likes, your type, Shaitan has the ability to turn this woman that is walking towards you into your type? You think it's a coincidence that all of the women that you scroll through on Instagram are your type. She's not your type, but Shaitan knows what your type is and he distorts the image in order to get your attention. And once he got your attention, it's in that moment he can exploit your vulnerability. He can exploit your vulnerability once he gets your attention. They are not your type, but Shaitan knows what your type is. And so he has the ability to manipulate the image of the women to make them see, right? Shaitan has an algorithm. No, Shaitan is the algorithm. Shaitan is the algorithm. This is what 
AI is all about? This is what artificial intelligence is all about? You think of something, you say something, right? If you wear the Apple Watch, right? The watch is connected to you, your pulses. Your watch is connected to your body. Don't you know when you scroll past something on Instagram, you give off a pulse. You give off a pulse and your, your watch is reading that pulse. This is what artificial intelligence is all about. We just found another name to give to it to make it scientifically acceptable. But behind all of that is none other than the master manipulator himself, Shaitan Ar-Rajim. You got to understand that. It's no coincidence that you have a conversation with somebody about Target or going someplace or looking at something. And the moment you open up your phone, there is exactly what you were talking about. That's not a coincidence. That's not a coincidence. It reads your pulses. It reads your body, reads your energy, reads your conversation to know it, to provide you with exactly what you want. This is capitalism, but the devil is in the details. This is capitalism, but the devil is in the details. So the woman approaching in the image of Shaitan and leaving in the image of Shaitan is that Shaitan has the ability to manipulate the image to manipulate the energy in a way where it kind of caters to your desire. And subhanAllah, we're living in some very demonic times. This is especially true in close quarters where men and women usually socialize and intermingle because the chances of frequent glances that may prompt one to go beyond legislative boundaries is highly probable. When a man is working in close proximity with women, we're constantly taking glance. Every time you take a glance, every time you look at the person and you look down, every time you look up again, you look down, every time you look over here, try to act like you're not looking and then you glance back over and women do it too. The constant glancing, right? The constant glancing. Every single time you take a look at the person, it creates more of a desire. It creates more of a desire. So essentially, every with every glance, you are being drawn in closer and closer to that individual, prompting you to either go over and say something, prompting you to, you know, possibly as women, they might not be, you know, bold enough to say anything, but they'll kind of go over by him and, you know, ask him a question or hopefully he'll say something. You know, we already know how these situations work. We know how they work. Most of us, if not all of us, have been in these situations before. But the chances of frequent glances that may prompt one to go beyond the legislative boundaries is highly probable. In the story of Bursisa, right? In the story of Bursisa, the priest from Bani Israel his ability to resist the temptation of a woman's presence and beauty was tested. Are you guys familiar with the story of Bursisa? 
And this is why I told you guys at the beginning when I wrote the book, you have to be aware of certain references that I use, right? Bursisa was the priest from Bani Israel who Shaitan wanted to destroy, right? So he possessed the girl. He possessed the girl. And then he encouraged the brothers to take their sister to Bursisa to kind of extract the devil out of her when Shaitan was the one who possessed the woman, right? So the brothers, they take their sister to Bursisa to get him to do some, you know, uh, rukya, right? Incantation, I mean, uh, the, um, what do they call it? The exorcism to remove the, the jinn from their sister. So he's working with the sister and the brothers say, hey, we have to travel. Can we just leave our sister with you? When we come back, we'll collect our sister. So Borisisa, he said, leave your sister. So he situates her in a room. And every day he would come in there and he would perform rukya, you know, trying to extract, trying to get the jinn out of her. But every day he walks in the room, she becomes more beautiful every single day. Here again, the frequent glances. So he walks in the room one day and eventually he sleeps with her. He sleeps with her can't resist the temptation because she's looking beautiful and beautiful and beautiful every single day. And eventually he sleeps with her. Not only does he sleep with her, he gets her pregnant. Shaitan comes to Borsisa in the form of a sincere advisor and says, I know what you did. You slept with that woman and you got that woman pregnant. Here's how you can get out of the situation. You want it because if everybody finds out, you know, your re reputation is shot. No one's going to listen to you no more. No one's going to respect you anymore. No one's going to, you know, so let me help you get out of this situation. Right. Kill the girl and kill the baby and bury them. So that the brothers won't find out. And so in an attempt to escape all of this, he kills the girl, he kills the baby and he buries both of the bodies. The brothers, on their way back, Shaitan goes to the brothers and say, hey, the scholar, the sheikh that you left your sister with, he slept with her. He got her pregnant. And he killed her and the baby. And I know where the body is. He goes and he shows them where the bodies are. Here's your sister, here's the baby's body. So the brothers, they go after Borsisa. You slept with our sister, you killed her, you, you know, right? You thinking that you cover all your bases. Meanwhile, Shaitan set the whole situation up to use you to get you to do exactly what he wants you to do. The brothers, they come and they get Borsisa and they are they're about to crucify him. They're going to kill him. Shaitan comes to Borsisa and says, I can get you out of this situation. The guy, Borsisa says, how? He says, I'm Shaitan. I set the whole situation up. I possess the girl. I encourage the brothers to bring the girl to you for you to get me out of her. 
I encouraged you. I beautified her to you every single day until eventually you slept with her. I was the one who encouraged you to kill her and bury the bodies. I was the one who told the brothers that you killed her and where the bodies were. And here you are in this situation. I can get you out of this situation. I just need you to do one thing for me. Just do one thing for me. That's it. And I'll get you out of this situation. And what you don't understand is that once you make a deal with the devil, you understand, like he does not stop. It doesn't stop. It's not, you know, here again, this, this whole idea of the genie and three wishes, right? Every single scenario, every time we've seen that cartoon, that movie, however they want to package it or repackage it, it always ends the same exact way. It always ends the same exact way. You rub the you you rub the, the the bottle, the genie comes out and says, Give me three wishes. And what you don't understand is that the moment you make that wish, the moment you make one wish, you've already sold your soul to the devil. And there is no favorable outcome in that situation for you. There is no favorable outcome. There's no honorable outcome in a situation where you have to exchange your soul. You have to sell your soul to get something in return. And so he says to Borisisa, just, I got one, you know, Borisisa says to him, I just need you to do one thing for me. And I'll fix this whole situation for you. Borisisa said, anything, name it, anything, name it. And he says, just make suju to me, prostrate to me. Prostrate to me, that's all I want. One sajda, just prostrate to me, one time. And so Borisisa, he prostrated to him and Shaitan said, you know what? I'm free from you. You guys go ahead and do whatever you're going to do with him. And they killed him anyway. And he died on shirk. He died on shirk because that was the end goal. Sin is not the end goal, brothers and sisters, understand. Sin just chips away at your spirituality. The end goal is not to get you to commit sin. Shaitan knows that God is all forgiving, most merciful. Even Shaitan knows that. Even Satan knows that God is all forgiving, most merciful. So his end goal is not to get you to just commit sin. It's deeper than that. As the scholars, they have a saying, that sins are a gateway that ultimately lead to disbelief in God. The goal is not, dis the goal is not to get you to sin. Sinning is just a pathway. It's just a means to an end. The end goal for shaitan is to get you to disbelieve in God. Disown God. To do something that is so disloyal to God. That's his goal. The goal is not to get you to commit sin. Sin, the more you do it, it just kind of chips away at your spirituality until you reach a low, low spiritually, and you'll pretty much do anything at that point. You're broken spiritually. 
and you'll pretty much do and once you hit rock bottom in your spirituality you'll pretty much do anything at that point you'll pretty much do anything so if you think that shaitan's goal is to get you to commit sin and you're trying to avoid sin here and there and you know you're trying to duck and dodge sin you you playing the wrong game you playing checkers you playing the wrong game You're playing the wrong game. The, the game is not to get you to commit sin. Sin just is a gateway, the vehicle that leads you to the greater point, which is to get you to disbelieve in the law subhanahu wa ta'ala or to do something that is so grievous against God, you know, that you pretty much believe that you're never going to be forgiven. You fall into despair and you turn your back on God altogether. You understand? As many people have. I ran into a brother just the other day and the brother told me, you know, he ran into some problems with some Muslims or whatever the case may be. And he said, well, Shadeen, I'm not going to hold you. He said, I was on the brink of leaving Islam. Those were his words to me. I was on the brink of leaving Islam. And in my mind, I'm saying to myself as he's talking, that's exactly what Shaitan wanted you to do. And he used the fitna that you were surrounded by, that you were encapsulated by. He used that as the vehicle to get you to go that route. You got to understand sin, trial, tribulation, misfortune, calamity, shaitan plays on all of that. He uses that to his advantage. The goal is not to get you to commit sin. The goal is to get you to commit so many sins that you either fall into despair and you give up hope in Allah's mercy and God's mercy or to do something that is so heinous, so grievous, so grievous, you know, uh, so heinous against God that, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, punishes you with those who, you know, but unlike Prophet Yusuf, Borsisa succumbed to the trickery of shaitan, leaving behind an example of what should be avoided in such situations. On the other hand, Yusuf's legacy, preserved in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's final revelation, is an example of what should be emulated and celebrated in situations like this. Yusuf led with his consciousness of Allah, which dictated that he put his morals before his manhood. He put his morals before his manhood. And why am I saying that? Because as men, we like, especially black men, we like to lead with, I'm a grown man, right? We, we like to lead with our manhood. And we let our manhood dictate what our morals should dictate. Right? Young boys are chided and mocked and made fun of because you know, even girls today, if a girl tries to talk to a guy and the guy didn't touch her or a guy didn't kick it to her, then she automatically accuses him of being gay. He's he's probably gay. No, how about you're probably ugly and you're probably a turnoff and you because the, the woman is so gassed up in her mind, she thinks that she's God's gift to every man. So when she tries to approach him, right, she tries to approach him. And he's not giving any, you know, he's not showing any interest. She chalks it up as, oh, he's gay because he ain't want to kick it to me. No, nah, how about you just ugly? <laughs> he ain't gay. <laughs> he, you're just not attractive. <laughs> or you might be attractive, but your character is horrible. You know what I mean? Like, I couldn't see myself with somebody like you. I'm good. You're not my type. <laughs> 
It's crazy. How how in the world you assume that this guy is gay because he he's not showing, he's not giving you any feedback. He's not giving you any rap. You know, he's not, you know, approaching you the way that other men approach you. How about he just has morals and manners? How about he was just raised right? How about he was just raised right? <laughs> and he's and he's not gay. <laughs> Right, you walk around. He he probably gay. No, you, you probably are are turn off. <laughs> he probably you're probably a turn off. But she would never stop to think about that. She would never stop to say, "Oh, maybe my approach was wrong, or you know, maybe I need to you know do less with the makeup, or maybe I need to stop going so hard, or maybe I need to stop looking like I'm so thirsty." <laughs> right? No, she ain't gonna never say that. Because then that would admit that she is the one that, you know, prompted him not to show any interest. No, she got to chalk it up as, oh, he's gay. No, you are turn off. SubhanAllah, yeah, But, you know, in today's time, men are mocked. It's like, you know, even other men like, you know, oh, you know, why don't you go kick it to her? Why don't you go talk to her? Oh, why don't you, you know. We pride ourselves, especially black men, young black boys, young black boys pride themselves on being a man by how many women they can dominate. How many women they can smash, how many women they can sleep with, because the more women I sleep with, the more bodies I catch, as they say, the more of a man I am. SubhanAllah. I was I was in the sneaker store the other day in the mall, right? And I, you know, I, I I wear Jordans like anybody else. So I had all my Jordans, and uh, the two young guys were in front of me, and one of them turned and he looked at my sneakers and he was like, "Yo, you need to get those. You need to get the Jordan threes like he got right there." He was like, "Yo, if you get them with your jacket, like, yo, the chicks is gonna love you." And you know, my wife turned to me and was like, "What did he just say?" It's like these guys, man, you know, they, they had to be no more than like 17, 18, you know, young African-American boys, you know, but this is, you know, this is what it's all about. You buy a pair of sneakers, you look a certain way and the girls are going to love you. The girls, the chicks is going to dig, they're going to dig you. They're going to feel you, you know, and I'm just like, subhanAllah, is that, is that where we are? That's how we measure our manhood by how many chicks we got. How many women, you know, checking us out? How many, you know, and that that carries over with us. I'm being honest with you. That carries over with us even into Islam, even in the Muslim community. And the reason why many Muslim men don't go after good, God-fearing Muslim women is because they're not going to show you the type of attention that the woman who doesn't really fear Allah or the non-Muslim woman who has no consciousness of God and to begin with, they're not going to show you that type of attention. They're not going to show you that type of infatuation. They don't care about how nice your beard is and how your lineup is. And, you know, they might think all of that is cute, but they don't lead with that. That's not what's going to sell you on her. But the woman who is not conscious of God or the woman who is not really connected to Islam like that, she's going to fall all over you. And that's what we have been so used to. We're used to measuring our manhood by the type of attention that we get from women. 
the internet connection is breaking up. I don't know why. Uh, uh, I'm going to stop it and turn it back on, inshallah. But you guys can go to Instagram. You guys can go to Instagram. I don't know what's happening. But but this is this is what it is. This is this is how we measure our manhood. This this is how we measure our manhood, you know. And it's it's really sad. It's really sad. And the 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 part of the reason, and I mean obviously there there are tons of reasons that that lead to that. But one of the reasons is that because these young men don't have men in their homes. There's there are no men guiding them. There are no men having conversations with them. There are no men that are, you know, just kind of laying it down for them so that they understand that that is not how you measure your manhood. You don't measure your manhood by how many women you smash or by how many women you sleep with or how many bodies you catch. That's not how you measure your manhood. Ugly dudes that are bums get girls now. Like, I mean, the desperation is there. <laughs> I mean, there was a there was a time where guys that get girls today, like a woman wouldn't have even looked in your direction. You know what I mean? But women are so desperate today, and you know, and the the female to male ratio is so exaggerated at this point. You know, women, you know, even ugly dudes and bums, like use a bum, and you still you still gonna get girls. You know what I mean? Like if that's how you're measuring your manhood. Like you as a man, you're measuring your manhood by how many girls you get, but you had the ugly dude over here who's a bum, got nothing going for himself, ain't going to be nothing more than what he is. He get girls too. So the, you and him on the same level, he get just as many girls, if not more than you do. So do you consider him on the same level as you? Absolutely not. So girls are not the measurement. How many girls is not a, is not a measurement. I don't, I don't understand how that has become the gauge. <laughs> how does that become the gauge? So, you know, it's important for as men, and I mean, we do that in the Muslim community, it has trickled over with us. What is the measurement? The Prophet ﷺ, for us as Muslim men, the, the measurement is the Prophet ﷺ. He's our standard. When you can emulate him, you know, being responsible, are you a responsible man? Because that's what being a man is all about, is being responsible. To, to be disciplined, a man that can control his environment and not be controlled by his environment, that's what makes you a man. To be in control of, you know, your emotions, and not allow you know other people to bring out emotions out of you that you weren't prepared to deal with simply because you don't have any control over them. These are the measurements, the measurements of a man to be responsible financially, academically, mentally, emotionally. That's what that's what the measure of a man is. And only a man can teach you that. Only a man can teach you that.
to be responsible with your money. Only a man can teach you that. Well, being a leader comes that everybody's not cut to be a leader. But being responsible, if you maintain that, that will put you above the rest because most men are not responsible. Most are not. And I ain't talking about just responsible with money. I'm talking about responsible with your emotions, responsible with your morality, responsible with your integrity, responsible with, you know, how you carry yourself. And if you maintain that, you will automatically, by default, you will become a leader. Responsible with your authority. That is the main quality that sets the bar for what a man is and what a man is not. When you see a guy who's irresponsible with his money, irresponsible with his emotions, irresponsible with, you know, all of these things, you can clearly see that he got the wrong message. He didn't understand the assignment. He didn't understand the assignment. And the only way these young boys will understand the assignment is when there is a man in their lives that explains the assignment to them. Otherwise, they're not going to understand it. And these young boys out here now, they clearly don't understand the assignment. They clearly don't understand the assignment. And it's, it's really sad because it's not necessarily their fault. I mean, if you grew up under your mom and your mom did the best that she possibly can, but there was no man in your life, there's always going to be a void in your life. You're always going to have a missing piece of that puzzle. Always. So it's not necessarily their fault, but this is what we're dealing with. This is what we're dealing with. So Yusuf led with his consciousness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, his taqwa, which dictated that he put his morals before his manhood. His manhood would have been to give in. Here's this beautiful woman who locked the door, secured the place to make sure we're good. His manhood would say, give in to it. But his morals said, eh, I can't do that. Your husband took me in, raised me, like, I can't do that. Yusuf didn't say he didn't want to sleep with her because it was haram. He didn't say that he didn't want to sleep with her because she wasn't beautiful. He didn't say that he didn't want to sleep with her because the situation just wasn't right. He said, I can't do this because your husband, your Lord, my Lord, raised me. I can't do something like this. This is immoral. I can't do this. How can that void of not having a man raise you be rectified? Number one, you got to acquaint yourself with the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ, you have to know the Prophet ﷺ's life in and out as if he was your father. You have to study the Prophet Sallallahu life as if someone told you this was your dad. And the only way that you can know who your dad is, is you got to go read his whole life detail for detail. 
because he didn't grow up with his father either. He had men that came in and out of his life, his uncle, his grandfather, other men that were around him, and he had to pull from that. He had to draw inspiration from the men that were around him. And that's how we rectify that situation. I, I wasn't raised with a father either. My father wasn't around. Yet, I knew that if I was going to be somebody's father, I were going to have sons that I had to I had to change something about myself. I had to begin drawing from the inspiration that was around me. That's all we have. If you don't have a man in your life, the only thing that you can do is begin to draw inspiration from the men that are around you, starting with the men of all men, Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. I swear to you, man, I I love this man as if he was my father. I, I, I know more about this man than I do my own biological father. And with me and my biological father are cool. But I know more about Prophet Muhammad Wasallam's life, detail for detail, intimacy, intimate things about his life. I know more about Prophet Muhammad Wasallam than I know about my own biological father. And my biological father is still alive and we're still cool. But I don't see him like that. I don't regard him like that. And that's nothing personal against him. He's still my father. I still respect him. I still love him. But I love Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam more. <laughs> I love Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam more than any man on this planet. And there's no man that will ever measure up in my eyes to him. No man. There's no man on this planet that I, I don't care how much money you have. I don't care if you married to the be most beautiful woman on the planet. I don't care how articulate you are. I don't care how academic you are, academically inclined you are. I don't care. Give me any quality. Give me any particular quality that makes a man measure up in the eyes of other men. There's no man on this planet that will measure up in my eyes to Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. No man, period. And so you have to begin drawing inspiration from the men that are around you, reading books, familiarizing yourself with great men that came and figuring out how these men became so great. What did they have? What did Malcolm have? What did Marcus, Marcus Garvey have? What did Malcolm have? What did Malcolm have? Uh, 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 Martin Luther King have? What did Malcolm have? What did Marcus have? What did these great men have, Mansa Musa? What did these men have that made them so great? What did they have? And you'll find one particular quality that is consistent, one thread that connects them all. And all of those same qualities are present in every man. They're present in every man. And you got to begin to pull from that and begin to incorporate that in your life and then pass that on. Be a living example of that and pass that on. There is no greater feeling than for your son to become an adult and to disclose to somebody that these are the things that he learned from his dad. And you feel like, man, I made an impact. I made an impact. Because that changes the narrative, because I couldn't say that about my father, but now my son can say that about me. And perhaps his son will be able to say that about him. You've changed the narrative. So Prophet Muhammad has proven to us 
that you can still grow up to be the best man on the planet, even though you didn't have a father. That's what his narrative shows us as men. That's what his narrative shows us as men. You don't necessarily have to have a man involved in your life, you know, your biological father, you know, present in your life in order for you to become the standard by which all other men are measured against. And he became that. He drew inspiration from the other men that were around him. He's proven, he's proven that you don't necessarily need to have a biological father in order to become, uh, you know, an upstanding guy. He's proven that. He's, you know, so very important. So for men that, you know, were not raised with their fathers, we don't necessarily have an excuse. We don't have an excuse. I wasn't raised with my father, and alhamdulillah, my, my children have never seen me out of pocket. Have I made mistakes as a man? Absolutely. But have my mistakes caused my children to see me less of a man? Absolutely not. Have my mistakes caused my children to see me as a human being? Yes. Have my children seen me make do things that would make me appear irresponsible in their eyes and for them to look to somebody else to emulate and imitate? Absolutely not. And I pray that it, it never happens like that. So Yusuf salam, he led with his consciousness of Allah, which dictated that he put his morals before his manhood. His morals before his manhood. His first line of defense, as it should be with every Muslim man, was to seek refuge with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from a situation that was well beyond his moral pay grade. Sometimes we find our situations and we find ourselves in situations that are above our moral pay grade. And in that moment, we have to submit to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that if you do not remove me from this situation, I'm going to make a huge mistake. You start to feel your desires inclining towards this woman or this particular situation. You realize that it is above your moral pay grade. In that moment, you have to reach out to the highest authority to intervene. Otherwise, if he doesn't intervene, you are going to make a huge mistake that you are going to regret. You have to reach out to a higher authority. Because you realize the situation is above your moral pay grade. Yusuf said, If you do not remove the trickery, the plotting, the scheming of these women from me, you don't remove me from this situation, you don't intervene in this situation, I am going to surely incline toward you. I am nothing but a man. <laughs> I am a man. I have the same desires as any man. God, if you don't intervene, I am going to do what any man in this situation would do. You understand? That's our dua. Brothers, if you're listening to me and you didn't take anything else from this conversation, take that and run with it. You're going to find yourself in your life in situations that are above your moral pay grade. I cannot do this by myself. And then you have to reach out to a higher authority, the highest authority, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and you have to invoke his intervention. Oh Allah, if you do not intervene in this situation, I am going to do what any man in this situation would do, and I'm going to be regretful. 
So his first line of defense, as it should be with any Muslim man, yeah, it applies to women as well, but we're talking to the men here. The example here is for men. Women usually, you know, have more discipline and self-control. It's it's the men who are lacking because men, we have impulsivity. Um, men can be very impulsive. That doesn't mean that women are not, but women are less statistically. Men are very impulsive. And even though we know that there are going to be consequences, we will still risk because we are risk takers. That, that's our nature as boys. I'm raising boys myself. So there's one particular kid, you got to tell him at least 10 times. But we have a saying, his name is Hyan. We call him Yanny for short. And we have, I have a saying with him, Yanny don't stop until he get popped. You tell him stop, stop, stop. And then I have to look at him and say like, how many times do I have to tell you to stop before I pop you? Like how many times, like 10, just tell me how many times I have to tell you so I can say it that many times and you stop before I pop you. 10 times, 20 times. Like how many times do I have to say stop before you stop? 20 times, I'll say it 20. But it's, that's just boys, that's boys. And that's with me as the male figure. <laughs> I can only imagine when I'm not here and how many times his mom has to tell him, stop. Like, how many times do I have to tell you to stop? This same kid who you got to tell him 20 times to stop, and even after the 20th time, he still does it again. And, you know, even after you pop him, he's still going to probably do it again. <laughs> this same kid is going to become an adult at some point. He's going to become an adult do you think that, and the thing is, is that he has no control. He doesn't have any control. I don't think that there's any boy who you can tell them one time stop and they stop. If you do, if you have that blueprint, please pass that on to me. Because I've been a parent for 21 years and it's, I still don't got it. I still don't have that blueprint. So if you got a plan, you got a, you got a foolproof plan that when you tell your child one time stop and they stop, <laughs> then please pass that, that, that blueprint on to me because I need that. This same kid is going to become an adult. And when they become an adult, do you think that that just stops? When they turn 19, 20, do you think that that impulsivity just disappears? No. It lessens. It is not as intense as they say statistically that the impulsivity in boys begins to decline around 25. Around 25, the you know the the risk taking the the impulsivity starts to decline. It's not as intense. But it you know in their younger years they have no control over it. If I told him to stop five times. He couldn't stop at number one or two if he wanted to. He couldn't stop if he wanted to.
So you got to understand, you know, as, as boys, as men, we have a certain temperament. You know, they have a certain temperament, you know, and there, there's some boys that are, you know, a little bit more responsive, quicker, you know, <laughs> than others. And then there are some that, you know, they don't stop until they get popped, you know. So, yes, this is why it's important for men not to just walk away from their families. Just imagine, you know, my, my, my grandfather, you know, is a veteran. And, you know, there were six boys. My grandmother has six boys. So my father, there are six boys and two girls, right? Six boys and two girls. And my grandmother was a small, my, my father, my uncles, these are huge men, six, one, six, two, all of them are tall, big guys, man, you know, big guys. And my grandmother, just a small, little, short, little woman, like just so sweet. You understand? So sweet. And when my grandfather came back from, um, from the war, He's a veteran. When he came back from the war, obviously most men, you know, during that time, 60s, 50s, 60s, they weren't right. They weren't right. Mentally, you know, they checked out. And so my grandmother had to raise six boys by herself. By herself. And, you know, the last three, you know, <laughs> The youngest three did her in, and my father was one of the youngest three. You know, back and forth to jail, back and forth to county jail, back and forth bailing you out. It's just, you know, this is a woman trying to raise six boys by herself. And, you know, I can only imagine there's Muslim women out here now, there's women out here now trying to raise four, five boys by herself. You know what I'm saying? So it, it's very important that men stick around, that they see the process through to the end. And even after they turn 18, 19, and we like to think that they're out on their own, they're not. You still know that I have a kid somewhere out here in the world that, you know, I still have to make sure that they're okay. It's a dangerous world out here. It's a big world out here. So, you know, you check on them every now and again to make sure they're good, but you can't just sleep knowing, all right, 18, I'm done. My, my responsibility is over. It's never over. It's never over. And then with Muslim children, you still make sure and they're praying. You're still on top of your salat. You're still connected with Islam. So many things, you know, and a woman cannot do all of that by herself. She can't. She can't. So I'll stop here, inshallah, Todd. I think the lesson is understood. We'll continue this at another time. Uh, um, but the, the law is very, very important. Law number 22, there's no greater trial for women, for men other than women. And I, and I pray that, you know, men understand, you know, where I'm coming from, understand themselves and, you know, uh, understand their role, their responsibility, you know. Uh, so, with that being said, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward you all. Jazakum Allahu khairan. Wa sallallahu ala nabiyya Muhammad.
Inshallah ta'ala, I will post this, uh, the audio on our, um, the Mardia show uh, um, podcast, and I'll post the, the video on uh, YouTube, inshallah, for guys to re-listen to this. It would be a good idea to listen to it if you have sons, to make them sit down for a moment and just kind of listen and make them understand that, especially when I talked about, you know, the measurement of manhood. It's not by how many women you got, how many girls checking for you, how many girls you've God forbid you've slept with. That's not how you measure your manhood. Man. It's not how you measure your manhood. Uh, is there an age where you do, don't need to provide financially for your kids? Um, I, <laughs> is there an age where you don't need to provide financially for your kids? I don't think so. I mean, you encourage, you know, your son. As for your daughter, my, my daughter, as long as I'm alive, I can't speak for anybody else, but as long as I'm alive, my daughter will never have to work. My daughter will never have to want for anything. That's, that's my daughter. I can't speak for anybody else's relationship with their daughters. But as far as long as I am alive, my daughter will never have to want for anything. Um, so I will provide for my daughter for as, as long as I am alive. As far as my sons are concerned, um, you encourage them to, you know, seek employment. You help them with their employment. But even along the journey, you know, you might pull back a little bit financially because you don't want to become a crutch for them. You want them to feel, you know, the, you know, the, the burden of what it means to be in a responsible man. So you are not going to kind of just shell out money the way you did when they were under your your care, your authority when they were younger. But you know, you don't, you don't see your son, you know, even at 22, 23, 25, 30 struggling and not, you know, assist in some way that you possibly can. Here again, you're always going to be a parent. You know, you're always going to be a parent. I mean, obviously, if you see that your son is financially irresponsible, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands us in the Quran, don't give the ignorant your money if, if they're going to squander it. So if you see that your son is financially irresponsible, you're not going to just keep, you know, the money pit. You're not just going to keep giving him money, giving him money, seeing that he's squandering it. You're not teaching him. You're hurting him. You're prolonging his development. You're prolonging his development. So as far as my son is concerned, I'm going to pull back financially because I want him to understand what it means to be, you know, an adult. But if he needs my assistance and I see that he's responsible and I see that it's a legitimate, you know, situation, then yes, I'm going to I'm going to provide. I'm always going to be as long as Allah is providing for me, I'm a provider for my children. I, I don't care how old they are. I'm always there. Obviously, if they're doing something that is haram or engaged in some behaviors, then no, I'm, I'm sorry. I can help you by giving you some advice, by giving, pointing you in the right direction. But as far as giving you my money, no, I'm not. But as long as my children are doing right and, you know, they make some typical mistakes that young men usually make, you know, they need a vehicle, they need, you know, help with this or help with that, then I'm always going to be there to assist. So I don't ever think that there is a time where you don't necessarily need to provide financially for your children. I, I don't, I don't ascribe to that. I'm sorry. 
will I get the same sin for guarding the warehouse uh, where they house wheat? Oh, I, I want you to think about this. I'm not, I'm not going to answer that because your livelihood is attached to that. And I don't want to just throw out a yay or nay or halal or haram so callously. But I want you to think about this. If marijuana, alcohol, intoxicants are haram, and you work at a job where you are responsible for guarding a place where marijuana is being stored. That means that in the event that that place is gonna get robbed, your job, your job description, your responsibility is to guard something that in your religion is haram. Just imagine someone came to rob that place and you are tasked with defending that place and you lose your life in the process of that. Allah forbid. You have to stand in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you are questioned as to, you know, your death, how your life, how you used it. And you died protecting, you know, a place where marijuana was being stored. Surely there is another profession out there Surely there are brothers here that are, are listening that can possibly point you in a direction, if not provide you with other employment that is more honorable, more admirable, you know, in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know, but at the end of the day, you have to think about situations. Here again, men, risk takers. You know, you have to think about the type of situation that you're putting yourself in, the risks that you're taking by putting yourself in that situation. If the facility is for medical marijuana, would it make a difference in my eyes? No, there is no difference. Marijuana is marijuana. I, I don't, whether it's medicinal and the, the CBD is pulled out and, you know, uh, the THC is pulled out and it's used for medicinal purposes. I personally don't see a distinction between medical marijuana and marijuana that gets you high. It all comes from the same source in, in my eyes. You can take another scholar's opinion and that scholar who gives you that has to live with that. I err on the side of caution. Um, prior to marijuana being used medicinally, what were people using before that? It's still going into your body. The THC is removed. So the ingredient that you know gets you high is removed, but is still harmful to your body. I'm not the one to, to pander. I'm not the one to teeter. I'm going to call it like it is. I stay away from gray areas. The Prophet said, in the halal bayin, wal haram bayin, bayinama huma umurun mushtabihad, la ya'lamuhunna kathiru min al-nas, wa man ittaqa al-shubuhad, the Prophet said the halal was clear, the haram is clear, and in between the two are gray areas that most people have absolutely no knowledge about. And whoever avoids the gray areas, stays away from the gray areas, then they safeguard their religion and their integrity, their honor and integrity. So I'm trying to safeguard my deen and my integrity. So if you ask Brother Shadid Muhammad, what's his take on that? Nah, I don't make a distinction between the two.
I'm good. I don't make a distinction between medicinal and recreational. It all comes from the same source. And the Prophet ﷺ said that Allah would never allow healing with something that he made haram. You understand? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will never Allah. That Allah will never make a healing in something that he made haram. The origin of it before the THC is pulled out. The origin of it. What is the gray area? The gray areas are areas in our religion that are ambiguous, that are not totally clear, that has not been spelled out blatantly, emphatically, halal haram. Those are gray areas. Modern day issues that kind of come up that scholars look at, they review, they research, and then they give an opinion uh, based upon that research. And as far as I'm concerned, I just err on the side of caution. It's all haram. Find something else that is taken from a halal source that can assist you with that. Or you could just be patient with whatever element that you are experiencing. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will remove your sins and possibly allow that to be your ticket to get into paradise. Or you can play around with that. It's, it's all on the condition of your heart. You guys have been great. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward you. Wasallallahu ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallama taslimin kathira. Wa subhanaka rabbika rabbil izzati amma yasifun. Wa salamun ala al-mursaleen. Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.